Wonderful. Okay. Um, Professor Wale, Adepanwe, uh, Sheira Kala, Ronegras, Sizwe, Mkwanazi, our invited guests, Professor Daly, Associate Professor Amber Murray, Panache Chibumadzi, uh, Simukai Chikudu is also Associate Professor, but is not here yet. Uh, is Esther Agwalade here? Not yet. Uh, present and past members of the Oxford Africa Society Executive Committee, past and present members of the Oxford Africa Conference Executive Committee. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third Oxford Africa Society annual lecture. My name is Simpiwe uh, Stewart. I come from Swaziland. I am the General Secretary of the Oxford Africa Society this year. Um, and I am especially honored to be hosting this year's annual lecture, partly because this marks the beginning of our Africa Week and the Oxford Africa Conference, which is taking place May 17 to 18 at the Blavatnik School of Government, but also because tonight's lecture is obviously a very important topic and one that is close to my heart. Uh, the lecture is Africa a Dissimilar System, Provisional Reflections on Africa and Knowledge Production will be delivered by Professor Wale Adebanwi, who is the director of the African Studies Center, as well as Rhodes Professor of Race Relations. We're joined after the lecture by an international guest panel, including Running Grass, who is with us from the United States and has been an activist in the environmental justice and environmental education movement for many years. Sizum Kwanazi, whose navigation of the international higher education system is a story of unrelenting ambition and perseverance and two women who, in the midst of their undergraduate degrees, spearheaded the largest protest in democratic South Africa to afford free and equitable access to higher education for all, Shaira Kala and Numpindulam Katra. Thank you all for coming. I'm sincerely looking forward to this. I hope that you'll stay afterwards to get to know the panelists and also to speak more with each other. I hope that tonight brings about more than just a conversation. Um, I think the idea of decolonizing education is more than just a discussion to be had between panel and uh, attendees. So I hope that you'll take the opportunity to see what we can do together after this. Thank you again for coming. Without further ado, uh, Professor Wale. Uh, I thank the Oxford Africa Society for inviting me to give this year's lecture. I'm particularly grateful to the president of the society who is on his way. And I'm um, especially grateful to the General Secretary CPUA Stewart for her diligence in organizing this event. Um, I'm happy that the society has invited a stellar cast of uh, discussants to explore this important theme uh, of decolonization of education. And I hope that what I have to say will be you know, a bit useful in, in this discussion. Uh, the title of my talk, uh, as uh, CPUA mentioned, is, uh, is Africa a dissimilar system? Uh, notes on Africa and knowledge production. I'll, I'll start by talking about how uh, studying the margins in the metropole. I taught a class called Introduction to African Studies for a little less than one decade in the African American and African Studies Department of the University of California, Davis. It was a lower division class that is one designed for first year students who might be learning about Africa for the first time in the university. The class also attracted students of different uh, at different stages in the undergraduate program, programs in different disciplines across the university. And if you know in the American system, people can come from different disciplines, from engineering to you know, sciences to take classes uh, in the humanities and social sciences. 
many of the students, roughly about 50%, had the least interest in Africa. They registered for the class as a general education requirement. Therefore, for this half of the class, it was often obvious from the first day of class that given a choice, they would rather be elsewhere. Each year, I would start the first day of class after the introduction by asking the students to take out a piece of paper and write down the first thing or image that came to mind once they heard the word Africa. Unfailingly, every year, the responses were overwhelmingly negative or at best, exotic. The leading suspects were ions, elephants, jungle, diseases, AIDS, wars, violence, poverty, ethnicity, and colonialism. The most positive, if you can call uh, this positive, were safari, cradle of mankind, volunteering, and peace corps. Why North Americans are geographic, geographically far removed from Africa, despite the tragic history that binds the Americas and Africa, and taking into cognizance the fact that most ordinary Americans do not care about the rest of the world anyway. Still, these responses were quite instructive in terms of the challenges of teaching the so-called dark continent to these students. Perhaps it should be stated in parentheses that if the way these students viewed Africa appear as expressions of ignorance about the continent by recent high school graduates, we should recall the infamous position of the Oxford historian, who, Trevor Roper, who, despite the thoughtful, evidence-based contemporaneous efforts of the likes of Basil Davidson, insisted in the 1960s that African history was the history of Europeans in Africa. Because, according to him, before the Europeans came to Africa, there was only darkness, and evidently darkness is not a subject of history. Like Hegel before him, Trevor Roper captured the position of many in the West who insist that, as Achille Mbembe captures it, quote, the human experience of black should be understood as fundamental difference, unquote. But, I quote again, the status of the African sign in the midst of the economy of authority, Mbembe, as Mbembe puts it, has survived the likes of Trevor Roper and Hegel. Thus, it should not have been so shocking to many scholars when Bruce Gilly, in the now controversial article published in the Third World Quarterly, entitled The Case for Colonialism, concluded that not only, quote, Western colonialism in Africa was, as a general rule, both objectively beneficial and sub subjectively legitimate, but also that, quote, anti-colonial ideology, which of course must include critical anti-imperialist scholarship and the, the decolonization agenda of groups like uh, Oxford African Society, and I continue the quote now, imposed grave harms on subject, pe subject peoples and continues to thwart sustained development and a fruitful encounter with modernity in many places, unquote. In light of this body of evidence, in quote, uh, Gilly uh, called for the reimposition of colonialism in Africa. Perhaps it is relevant to add in parentheses again that Gilly does not study Africa. He advertises himself, in quote, as a specialist on the comparative politics of China and Asia. But since what many need is a good measure of ignorance about Africa and his co complex history to be an expert, perhaps he will qualify as one. So what are the implications of such views as these about Africa for African studies? If most of the countries in the continent are regarded as unqualified for several, how can we study such a subject people? If Africans are not considered to be agents of history, even their own history, can the study of Africa move beyond the perennial focus on the continent's purported dissimilarities with the rest of the modern world? 
The images of Africa, which some of my first year students in the U.S. carry in their heads, in their first year in the university, are no different from the images in the heads of those who are in control of critical spheres of decision-making in the West, particularly in contemporary United States. Of course, one witness is President uh, mm -hmm. Donald Trump's SH countries. Mm -hmm. Scholars have described this attitude as a form of distance from critical forms of knowledge. It is, the, it is this kind of attitude to Africa that provoked the important vo volume, Africa and the Disciplines, published in 1993, which emphasizes how knowledge about Africa has contributed to the different disciplines. The book is in part, is part of the larger and ongoing attempts to, quote, shift the geography of reason, unquote, to expose the ignorance that masquerades as knowledge, or what in the more critical tradition championed by Mudimbe constitutes a quest to dismantle, quote, the colonial library while promoting African epistemology, unquote. If Africa is assumed to be so dissimilar from the rest of the world, particularly the West, should those of us who study and teach Africa or about Africa accept this as a given or teach and conduct our research as if this were an essential absolute truth? That is, most Africans assumed and I dare say accepted the similarity both in global history and in the contemporary global system be the absolute departure point for our pedagogy as well as for our epistemology. In the age of global studies, can we truly give a robust account of the continent's diversity, complexity, as well as its presence in what Mbembe recently describes as the incommon of the world, if the fundamental basis for studying and teaching Africa is its essential and absolute dissimilarity? its permanent contrast with the normal, the regular, that is the Western, rather than its particularities which do not occlude its similarities and continuities with the rest of humanity? Why is a continent that has always been global in its interface with the rest of the world, for good or for ill, as any elementary student of history would know, popularly imagined and largely taught as one that was forced into global relations only in the contemporary era, and yet is still described by Pew as remotely global. These are the questions which have partly animated the debate about African studies in the last few decades. As Judy Byfield asserted, quote, Africa is central to any intellectual enterprise, but especially one that purports to be global. While I cannot hope to exhaust the dimensions of this debate in this lecture, I hope to address some of its important dimensions. Those of us who teach uh, and study Africa have a duty not to not only draw out the continent's particularities, including its differences, which many have done excellently, if not if excessively, but also to emphasize and document its presence and co-presence in the global context. Against the backdrop of a short reflection on African studies in Africa, the United States, and the UK, what I hope to do in this lecture is to point to some of the salient issues that have been raised and add a few more that might push the debate further. My purpose is not a criticism of African studies, or rather a critique that points to existing tensions and some of the surviving elements of the old attitudes and paradigms, and the consequences of the enduring study of Africa as an essential and negative difference, which looks to the past as a fundamentally dissimilar system, no less promoted by African scholars as by non-African Africanists. This Africa as difference perspective is particularly problematic because the difference has, on the one hand, been deployed as a means of inferiorizing the continent as well as the humanity and experiences of its people, and on the other, as a way of claiming that Africa and things African must be defined as or by anything 
that is not the West. The latter view has been described by Olufemi Taiwo recently as one fueled by what he called Occident anxiety. Indeed, some of the fundamental, fundamental misunderstanding of the, the colonial movement have fueled this Africa's difference perspective, but we can return to this in our discussions later. Though the study of Africa has developed tremendously since the era when Africa was, as, as Zelesa argues, a subject of anthropological folklore, yet some of the assumptions of that era linger in the contemporary era. And I will talk briefly now about why, uh, why African studies in Africa. I will use my personal trajectory to illustrate the strand of the continental experience of study in Africa. I joined the Department of Political Science in the University of Ibadan in 1999 as an assistant lecturer. The Ibadan School of Political Science is famous for its solid scholarship, but not of the radical form. It boasts of an epistemological tradition that is as grounded in Western traditions as it is focused on Africanist as well as comparative interpretations of local and global dynamics. This has produced theoretical re-evaluations and reinterpretations of received Western orthodoxy. <coughs> the school's direct and indirect dialogue with the famous Ibadan School of History is perhaps one of is perhaps one that is best represented in the debate between Jacob Adiajai, the late preeminent African historian, and Peter P. Ake, the political sociologist of the Ibadan School of Politics. The two disagreed on how best to approach colonialism in African history. While Ajayi insisted that colonialism was a mere episode among several other episodes in the long durée of African history, Ake, in his famous two public thesis, argued that colonialism considered an epoch in Africa's history, not one that not only changed the colonial present and post-colonial future, but also uh, affected how we understand the pre-colonial pre past. This debate is too familiar to African scholars to bear repeating here. What I want to draw attention to, however, is the tradition of engaged and critical scholarship to which we were here in the political science department in the Bible. It was a tradition that embraced global scholarship without regarding its own rigorous traditions as inferior to any prior or existing traditions of studying society. The Ibadan School sought what some scholars have described as, quote, alternative ways of thinking about the world and alternative forms of political practice, unquote. However, there was no assumption that these alternative ways or forms of political practice were outside of the common human experience. Adam Zaworski and Henry Chiu's famous book, The Logic on Comparative Inquiry, was a compulsory text in the graduate school of my generation of social science students in Ibadan, as was AK's Colonialism and the Two Published in Africa, a theoretical statement, which was published in 1975. Zawoski and Till's clarification of theory, construction, and techniques, and strategies, and the logic of explanation regarding the problems of contemporary political science were fascinating to us, even if initially slightly elusive. For those of us who were interested in comparative cross-cultural research, their argument about the primacy of understanding systems through the lens of what they describe as most similar and most dissimilar systems, was most enlightening. Studying the case to publics and its comparative analysis of the emergence of public spheres in Europe and Africa, and the fundamental difference that colonialism made in bifurcating the public sphere in Africa, constitute a great example for some of us of how the perspective of the most dissimilar system in comparing Europe with Africa could be problematic. But the greater value of AK's thesis is not merely in drawing out dissimilarities, but also in using dissimilarities in historical evolution through human agency and structural changes to point to why different social, economic, and political outcomes have been recorded in two different parts of the world. 
Its greater value is in pointing out the fundamental basis of a mirage of social crises which emphasize the epochal, epochal nature of colonialism. From the 1960s, AKS University of Ibada, like a few others of its generation, including the University of Ghana in Legon, the University of East Africa, which later became Makarewe in Uganda, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, and University of Nairobi in Kenya, took on the mission of ensuring that knowledge production reflected Africa's history and emergence in the modern world. In doing so, some felt it was important to establish institutes of African studies. This was opposed by others who argued that there was no need to study Africa separately in an African institution. However, a few critical voices and leaders insisted that institutes of African studies were necessary as centers driven by the need to engage in, quote, forms of knowledge production about Africa that challenge colonial categories and the conventions of academic <laughs> disciplines that was Africa-centered, Africa-based, and globally engaged. And the emphasis for me is on globally engaged. That sought to tr transcend the politics of the Cold War and defy the hegemonic impulses of U.S. racial politics, as uh, Osman Allman has explained. Two examples of this were the Institute of African Studies in the University of Ghana, which was started in 1960 but formally opened in 63, and the Institute of African Studies in the University of Ghana, which was started in 1962. African studies in this it was approached in Ibadan, not as a fundamentally different form of knowledge, but as, quote, Africa's own contribution to the global pool of intellection, unquote, with the aim not just of, for Africans to understand themselves, but also to present knowledge of Africans to the rest of the world from Africans' perspectives. The institute in Ibadan started as an interdisciplinary research institute with a mandate to, quote, to build a body of knowledge and to construct an attitude of intellection that will not take for granted the heritage of African peoples, their experiences in the present, and their aspirations for the future. However, the mission of the IAS in Ibadan, while liberationist, was not as radical as the IAS established in Legon. This was not surprising given the differences in the nature of their funding, founding and funding. The IAS Ibadan was partly funded at deception by Rockefeller and Ford Foundations. In the case of IAS, IAS Legon, the involvement of the first president of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, in setting the mandate and the core responsibility of the institute with regard to knowledge production largely determined its initial trajectory. The IAS Legon, Legon's mission was to challenge what had either to considered African studies in the West. Stated Nkrumah at the opening of the institute, quote, first and foremost, I would emphasize the need for a reinterpretation of our past. We need to recognize frankly that African studies in the form in which they have been developed in the universities and centers of learning in the West have been largely influenced by the concept of old-style colonial studies and, to still, and still, to some extent, remain under the shadow of colonial ideologies and mentality." Unquote. Nkrumah encouraged the study of African history, culture, institutions, languages, and the arts in, quote, new Africa-centered ways in entire freedom from the propositions and presuppositions of the colonial epoch, and from the distortions of those who continue to make European studies of Africa the basis of the new assessment, unquote. Also, he encouraged the study of Africa, quote, in the widest possible sense, Africa in all of its complexity, diversity, and its underlying unity, unquote. There are two important points here in relation to the study of Africa in the present, and with implications, of course, for the future. First, Nkrumah wanted Africa to be studied not as part of colonial science or area studies, 
the latter, which emerged as part of the national security and strategic planning as well as global surveillance in the Cold War era. Second, he wanted Africa to be approached in all of its dimensions, ancient and contemporary heritage, including the study of North Africa. He wanted us to transcend the Arabic, French, and English device in dollar production in Africa. Therefore, he argued for the inclusion in African studies of Africans in all parts of the world, including in the Americas, in Europe, in Asia, what he described as Africans abroad. Third, he called for a reimagining and reinvention of how knowledge about Africa was produced interpreted and circulated. However, in the 1960s, this mission did not preclude recruiting Western scholars to help in its implementation. After the University of Legon failed to recruit E. Evans Pritchard from Oxford, Thomas uh, Leonard Hodkin, also an Oxonian, accepted the position as the director of the Institute in 1962. Hodkin saw the mission as one in which African studies could assist in the process of what he described as African revolution. By exposing racist colonial myth, by building up code, systematically <coughs> uh, as comprehensive a body of source material as possible to disprove the myths and take the mission, on, the mission of the interpretation of the evidence and the wide dissemination of this interpretation, as Jean Allman uh, recently noted. He wanted African story centers that were, quote, liberated as far as possible from conventional Western presuppositions. Nkrumah argued that it was in these centers that it was possible to produce knowledge about Africa in which we could have confidence. It is therefore not surprising that W.E.B. Uh, du Bois became part of Nkrumah's larger project alongside his investment in the Institute of African Studies. Nkrumah mobilized Du Bois to work on the Encyclopedia Africana, which had been partially sabotaged by Escovitz, the man who is regarded as the founder of African Studies in the U.S., in the 1930s. It is interesting that the popular view of Escovis as the founder of African study in the United States was a deliberate attempt to obscure the study of Africa pioneered by African Americans in historically black colleges and universities, the HBCUs, which preceded the period in which Escovis became the vanguard for the study of Africa and the formation of the, African, or the U.S. African Studies Association in 1957. The African American pioneers of African studies, uh, to quote Zeleza, focused on Africa's civilizational status, the continent as a whole, and its diasporic connections, unquote. This started with Leo Hansberry, who imposed a coherent approach towards the program in African studies when he joined Howard University's history department in 1922. Despite the opposition he faced, Hansberry started a series of courses on what he called Negro civilizations of ancient Africa. Du Bois later introduced a course on ancient Africa at Atlanta University in 1936. In what Jim Allman correctly described as the reimagining of knowledge production about Africa globally and on African terms, Nkrumah, who had been trained at one of the uh, uh, BCUs, that is Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, was a critical fig figure. This fact is of often eluded today in the scholarship on Africa, in particular knowledge production in and about Africa in general. Indeed, as Allman points out, the December 1962 International Congress of Africanists held in Accra, Ghana, in which members of the History of African Studies and the Secretariat of the Encyclopedia Africana participated, brought together Africanists from all parts of the world, north, south, east, and west. There were attempts, even at this point, to take over the control of this process from Africans, as racial politics of knowledge production surfaced. This was success success successfully resisted. As Allman has noted, and I quote her, 
The fact that the epistemic crisis was unfolding in an independent African nation, which took very seriously the challenge of reverting African studies, was not insignificant, unquote. Yet, quote, this seismic shift in the balance of power and the production of knowledge about Africa, which was resisted by the likes of Escobis, who insisted that expertise on Africa was located outside of the continent, did succeed for a few years as the Africanization of African studies raised important questions about the mission of the post-colonial university. These questions, unfortunately, were to be answered in disastrous ways from the mid-1960s and the post-Cold War era. What happened to African studies specifically and knowledge production in general in Africa since the coming of military rule, one-party states and authoritarian regimes of different hues, is common knowledge. Whatever was left of the integrity of higher education was exposed to the devastation wrought by the IMF and the World Bank through structural adjustment programs as implemented in most, Af West, uh, in most African countries in the 1980s and the early 1990s. One of the most devastating consequences of this was the hollowing out of the centers of, uh, of the centers of knowledge production in most African countries and the subversion of the project of the 1960s to reimagine and reinvent how knowledge in and about Africa was produced, interpreted, and circulated. This led to the displacing of a substantial part of Africa's intellectual formation from the continent to the West. While this might be a form of blessing to African studies in the West, particularly in the United States, to which most of the African scholars em emigrated, this has helped to foster a measure of intellectual aridity in the continent's higher education sector, particularly from the 1980s. Thus, despite the gallant efforts of many that remain in the continent, it is impossible to understand knowledge production by Africans in the contemporary era without accounting for knowledge production by Africans outside of Africa. It is therefore understandable that until the last few years, the most critical contestation of hegemonic knowledge production by Africans were happening in the global north, more than in the continent. The Rhodes Must Fall movement and the Free Must Fall movement, as well as the movement for the decolonization of the curriculum, have since changed the face and fate of the struggle around knowledge production from within the continent as well as outside of the continent, as we witnessed here in Oxford a few years ago. In this context, it is important to note that the South African case constitutes a specific experience because of its peculiar history. When South Africa emerged from apartheid into multiracial democracy in 1994, its leading universities struggled, struggled with the legacy of Bantu education in the attempt to reimagine and reposition African studies. The case of the University of Cape Town, where Africa's leading social scientist, Mahmoud Mamdani, was recruited to help lead this initiative, is a signal example of the crisis of knowledge production in the post-apartheid context. In 1997, Mamdani was appointed the director of of the Center for African Studies at UCT, as he eloquently describes uh, the crisis that led to his exit, which I would suggest also constitute you know, part of the back backdrop for the current uh, struggle uh, to decolonize higher education in South Africa in particular. The Bantustanization of African Studies in the former whites-only university meant that Mamdani was initially, to quote him, hired as an advertisement, a mascot for the Center for African Studies, unquote. This center was, quote, totally marginal to the real work of the university, teaching and research, unquote. The key question that Mamdani raised in South Africa in 1997 is yet to be fully answered two decades later. How to teach Africa in a post-apartheid academy. But as the recent uh, movement to decolonize the curriculum by the students in South Africa show, concerned forces have not given up despite the illusions of South African exceptionalism such as the assumptions of uh, South Africa's cultural, economic, and political dissimilarities with the rest of uh, equatorial Africa. 
Now we'll talk about African studies in the United States. Earlier, I mentioned my experience with the class on introduction of African studies. I should add that the good thing about this was that the students who took the study of Africa seriously and uh, who therefore you know, took other classes after their first year um, eventually found that Africa was not about just lions, you know, elephants, and uh, safari. Now, in fact, they found an Africa or Africans whose social processes are as dissimilar as they are similar to the social processes in the United States. I'll give one example. One of the new classes that I designed and taught at UC Davis uh, is uh, the politics of life in Africa, which, by the way, I have since taken here. The objectives of the class were to present an overview of the politics of life in Africa, including how social, economic, and political lives are constituted and the implications of this process for whether Africans live well or not, and how they die and their struggles for alternative lives, both within and outside of Africa. The class usually started with a question from Bimbi, which I found instructive, and I quote in Bimbi, if you want to reflect critically on the borders of life and the drama of being, on what it means to be alive today, then we have to get out of the petrified systems and languages in which certain traditions of social science have imprisoned the African experience, unquote. I tried to encourage critical, relational, and comparative thinking about life in Africa and beyond, including putting things in historical and social context, relating the position of African social and lay theorists about life in Africa to Western theorizing about life in the West. What I found most striking was that for the five years that I taught this class, half of the time for discussion was often devoted to the reality of life in the United States and other places from where my students uh, uh, emigrated. There, there are, of course, major differences, positive differences, you know, but these differences do not define our essential and common humanity. Rather, they have historical, geographical, and social explanation that give them both specific and general forms. Thus, cross-cultural comparison between Africa and the United States are not defined within the context of the public politics of life by only the similarities, despite the wide disparity in the quality of life index. Indeed, as I regularly pointed out in the class, Botswana's infant mortality rate was comparable to that of Mississippi. The lesson is that an African country is not fundamentally dissimilar to one of the historically important states in the United States in the structural and social conditions that affect life. Though Botswana is one of the best cases in Africa, and Mississippi obviously the worst case in the United States, there are some historical, structural, political, and sociological reasons that can be used to understand those similarities. One of the key texts in my other class, uh, which was on African modernity and globalization, is Olufemi Taiwo's important book, How Colonialism Preempted Modernity in Africa, where he argues for the singularity of the Enlightenment project and rejects any claim that the Enlightenment is, a, is not a common heritage. Taiwo shows that colonialism was not an extension of the Enlightenment, but a subversion of it. Though based on the Enlightenment pretensions, colonialism, Taiwo argues, preempted modernity which missionary Christianity had implanted in Africa. He therefore persists that to understand the trajectory of modernity in Africa, we need to disentangle modernity and colonialism. <laughs> Thus, in thinking about modernity, the missionaries should be regarded as revolutionaries, while the colonial administrators were the reactionaries. I use these examples to illustrate some of the limited changes in the teaching of African studies in the United States, largely due to the massive increase in the number of African studies now teaching about Africa in North America. My experience is suggestive of the role of the new African diaspora in teaching Africa in the United States, with, of course, implications for elsewhere. Despite lingering prejudice 
and persistent ignorance. The fact that more Africans are now teaching about Africa in the United States has not only ensured diversity, it has helped in raising questions about the nature of knowledge production in ways that has expanded uh, it, in ways that have expanded the horizons of, of students studying Africa in the United States. In some cases, and this is significant, the new African diaspora are also able to point attention to the conveniently forgotten history of African studies in the United States. While ESCOVID has come to be regarded as founder of African studies in the U.S., the larger presence of Africans in African studies departments or programs or centers or whatever they are called in the United States affords us the opportunity to intervene and rewrite this history as Paul uh, uh, Celeza has brilliantly told, by reminding us that African Studies United States was actually pioneered by African Americans. While indeed African Studies did not start in Africa, in its first iteration, it was indeed a study of Africa's past, present, and future, and of Africans by displaced Africans. Thus, it included a vision of what I call global Africa, in which people of African descent all over the world were incorporated. However, in its ESCOVID iteration, it became the study of Africa, not of Africans, as Mamdani has argued. African studies of the ESCOVID tradition, which became dominant in the United States, and which in a way followed the tradition in Europe, developed in the context of colonialism, the Cold War, and apartheid. This period, Mamdani argues, quote, shaped the organization of social sciences, social science studies in the Western Academy. The key division was between the discipline and area studies. The discipline studied the white experience as a universal <coughs> human experience, and area studies studied the experience of people of color as an ethnic experience, unquote. This was partly why Nkrumah wanted to take Africa out of the ghetto of area studies to make it a foundation for knowledge production that related to the rest of the world on equal terms, one that located itself in global history as part of what Mbembe calls an incommon, that is part of a common human heritage an heritage located like others in a different region of one world. No doubt, this opposition to the ghettoization of African study, or one that dissimilarizes Africa as just an area, continues to exercise the mind of those who want to control African studies. It was evident in Philip D. Cotton, who saw the growing number of Africans teaching African history in the United States as an anathema and therefore a ghettoizing of African history. Some intellectual uncles was raised in the Africanist community in the United States when the, uh, the American historian, that is Cotton, wrote in, 19, in a 1995 issue of the Chronicle of Higher Education that the new phenomenon of hiring scholars of African descent to teach African history was a form of intellectual apartheid because he believed that white historians were not being hired, thus leading to declining standards. The reaction to Cotton, uh, in a way, can be read as an attempt to take the area out of area uh, of African studies and globalize its essence in the larger debate on the politics of knowledge production. Yet, the area-ness of African studies has survived in the United States and, of course, in Europe. However, there are recent, there are recent and critical effort, efforts to globalize African studies, which has led to moving African studies from area studies, which is the Batustan, to global studies in some universities. Incidentally, here it's global and area. In, but that's another story. The mission of the Institute of African Studies in Columbia University is a good example of a new approach to African studies. While recognizing its specificity as grounded in a region of the world with its own particularities, including, quote, a unique set of impulses, experiences, and knowledges, the Institute is eager to fully embrace Africa's insertion historically in the present and the future of the, in the world, but not as a constitutive lack. 
as evident in the popular imagination in the West or as a continent in the clutches of the past and tradition. The major goal of Columbia uh, Institute of African Studies, as its director, Mahmoud, uh, Mamadou Diouf, uh, articulates it, is, quote, to understand Africa in a global context and to insert an African experience in the discussion of globalization and global issues, unquote. Thus, their mission is Africa in the world, the world in Africa. That is their guiding theme. In navigating the global tone, this positioning places Africa at the center of the long durée, using, quote, inter- and cross-disciplinary discussions and debates in new ways that challenge pre-existing assumptions and move the field in new, exciting uh, directions. Though some scholars have noted that global studies creates a lengthy list of dilemmas uh, for area studies program in general and African studies in particular, I'm not suggesting merely the study of Africa as part of global studies, but the foregrounding of global African studies. This will mean the transformation of pedagogy, including the transformation of how issues concerning Africa in its globality, its multidimensionality, and multi-speciality are approached. In the final part of this talk, I will elaborate briefly on how this new vista can be beneficial in thinking about the future of African studies in the UK. What I want to do in this section is to push for some of the issues already you know, are raised as possible pathways for the future of African studies in the UK. I wish to draw out what I consider as the key questions that arise from these in the light of the existing challenges in the history of African studies in Africa, in the UK, in the US, and in Europe. I will do so against the backdrop of uh, Pope Celeza's charge to African studies in Europe, that African studies in Europe remain, by and large, the study of the colonial and post-colonial order. One of the most articulate analyses of the dynamics of African studies in Europe uh, and Africa is by John Lostey in his 2005 plenary lecture at the European African Studies Conference in London. I will argue that a key question that Lonsdale raised more than one decade ago can be a departure point for thinking, rethinking, and reorienting African studies in the UK from the standpoint of what has been called global Africa. And this is the question he raised. How far might our analysis of African societies, economies, and polities be better adapted to exploring how far African agency might combat local and global structures of inequality, injustice, and misrule? Three phrases are critical for me here. These are African societies, economies, and polities, African agency, and then global structures. I think Lonsdale's phrases can be explored in the light of the mission of the Institute of African Studies as articulated by Nkrumah more than five decades ago. I would like to argue that we cannot adequately address the 21st century challenges inherent in Lonsdale's question without first approaching Africa in a global perspective, that is, as global Africa both historically and in the present, as Nkrumah long ago insisted. We can do this by, to quote uh, uh, Diouf, sh I mean, to quote the Caribbean philosophical session, shifting the geography of reason. First, African studies centers and African studies uh, in the UK should re-interrogate what constitutes African societies, economies, and polities. They have to be reimagined not only from the conventional continental location of Africans in Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, as it is often done, but also from their dislocation and relocations in all parts of the world. Du Bois, like a few others in, of his generation, and I quote Celeza here, try to understand and situate Africa into worldly representations and recognition to affirm Africa's presence 
that was both unique and equal to others, unquote. Against this backdrop, the African diaspora should become a central part of African studies curriculum. Is it possible to imagine Jewish studies that ignores the Jewish diaspora? Under the Council of Global Africa, as Diouf recently argued, the African-American, Caribbean, Latin American, Indian Ocean, as well as North African libraries should no longer be treated as extraneous to core African studies. I must note here that success African studies laudably rejects the division between sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. In contrast, in Oxford University, Sudan studies is under Middle East Center, like other North African countries, even as Morocco is struggling <coughs> to be part of Economic Community of West African States. As Sinkrumah stated, the study of Africa must be approached, I quote him again, in the widest possible sense, Africa in all of its complexity, diversity, and its underlying unity. Or what uh, Mr. Sir long described as the totality of the black world. Second, when we reimagine what Africa means as a global phenomenon, that is, territorialized as well as de-territorialized, how we study African agency has to change, both qualitatively and quantitatively. To go back to shifting the geography of racing, while the French and the American revolutions have been the two pivots on which 18th century democratic revolution has been theorized and taught, changing our approach means that we must start teaching the major contributions of African agency to global democratic history from the departure point of the Asian Revolution, the first black revolution in the modern world with global implications. Thus, our reading list must include work of C.R.L. Uh, James, Paul Giroy, uh, Michel Trudeau, Sibel uh, Fischer, David Scott, Susan Buckmore, and the rest, and also their African contemporaries, including, of course, Achille Mbembe's latest work, A Critique of Black Reason. The silence in dominant Western history about the Asian Revolution as a third in the triumvirate of 18th century revolutions that redefined modernity can be best corrected not only by teaching it as part of Caribbean history, but as a core curriculum in global African studies. As Paul Gilroy has argued, we need to show students, quote, that the experiences of black people were part of the abstract modernity, unquote, and show, and I quote him again, evidence of some of the things that black intellectuals have said about their sense of embeddedness in the modern world, unquote. When Oatkin said in 1963 that African study coexists in the process of African revolution, he should have added that this must start by recognizing and teaching the first major African revolution in the modern world, which is the Asian Revolution. The third is global processes. A lot has been written about globalization in Africa and Africa in the global age. However, beyond the debates on Africa's place and challenges and opportunities within globalization, is the recognition that Africa was not remotely global in the dawn, at, the, at the dawn of the 21st century. It has been truly global, at least since the 17th century, when it became central to the international trade system, despite the ravages of history. Thus, we have a duty not only to study how global processes affect Africa, but also how Africa affects global processes. Beyond these are the need to directly rethink and expand the curriculum. Longley stated more than a decade ago that, quote, African studies stands in great need of economists and economic historians who might understand how the hidden mysteries of globalization affect Africa, unquote. No doubt, economic historians have made great contributions to mainstream African studies. And a great example of this is uh, Paul Zeleza's uh, award-winning book, A Modern Economic History of Africa. However, economists are still a rarity in most African studies centers. In some places, as in Oxford, the Center for African Economies is separate and separated from Center for African Studies. Finally, to return to the critical issues raised by Taiwo in his recent piece, where he identified Occident anxiety as a phenomenon 
that is quote hunting African intellectuals. African as well as Africanist scholars teaching about Africa within and outside the continent must abandon their conscious and unconscious embrace of what Taiwo describes the ideological history of the West, which has turned quote a human inheritance into a local Western patrimony, and which you know uh, leads scholars into what he describes as an anxiety about Africa's place in the world. Taiwo encourages Africanist. African and Africanist scholars, as well as students of Africa, to quote, abandon any racism inflected metaphysics of difference that takes Africa out of the normal circuit of human doing and thinking, unquote. This is because, as he said, Africa's problem, African problems are contingent iterations of human problems. Africa is not a difference. It is neither dissimilar from the rest of the world, nor is it constituted as an essential dissimilar problem in global history and in the contemporary era. Thus, it shouldn't be studied, uh, it shouldn't be so studied. And I'll conclude now. I do not intend to understate the huge challenges confronted by African states as reflected in the poor state of higher education in many parts of Africa. Indeed, I would suggest that the challenges of African studies everywhere are in part reflections of the structural and other deficiencies of the African states. Therefore, I do not in any way wish to suggest that external reasons exclusively account for the problems of African studies. In fact, what global African studies must do is to take as much cognizance of external factors such as Africa's insertion, insertion in the trajectory and career of global capitalism, as much as focus on dynamics that are internal to the African world, and how these dynamics condition and are conditioned by external relations and global contacts. Yet, African studies must transcend what I would describe as pathologies, what as a lesser rather described as pathologies of other otherness, or Taiwo described as occident anxieties. In 1955, Cesare wrote that, quote, people could write a history of the world civilization without devoting a single chapter to Africa, as if Africa has made no contribution to the world, unquote. We can no longer continue with the dominant tradition, which assumes that global Africa has contributed nothing to the work of the universal, as Mbembe describes it. Thus, the fundamental basis of African global African studies must be the central role of Africa in understanding and accounting for our common humanity and in the shareable goals of human <coughs> dignity, the sanctity of life, justice, equity, equality, and democracy. We should give value to the fact that there is nothing about Africa that is outside of our common humanity and shareable past, present, and future. By so doing, we can raise the profile of African studies as a field of knowledge production and as an entry point into an unending project of intellection about the human condition. I thank you. Mm -hmm.